Just one more word on this. I, I fear that sometimes people, sometimes we feel this way. We want to see a mighty movement of God. We want to see God move mightily in our midst. We want to see miracles and signs and wonders. We want to see these experiential type of things. And yet, we hold very lightly the truthfulness and the power of the word that was delivered to us by the apostles. We, we take that word lightly while we make much of the experience or the quote-unquote power of the experience. Beloved, you hold in your hand an English translation of God's holy word. And it is true. And it is reliable. And we don't need miracles and signs and wonders. And we don't need large movements to prove to us its truthfulness. Here we have even its proof here in Acts chapter 5. God was moving mightily in their midst more so than ever. But then you see the old leadership. The old leadership. So Jesus has, has made his new leadership, the apostles. New leadership and powerful witness. And now you see the old leadership of the people of Israel come in with jealous opposition. Did you see that? And why wouldn't they be jealous? They are watching this powerful display and they, they realize that they're losing control. <coughs> they're losing the thing they love the most. The esteem of people. The power politically over people. The old leadership and jealous opposition. Again, this parallels what we saw in chapter 4. We've been here before. They, they seek to put a stop to the message. Look verse 17. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Here we go again. Only this time, the apostles don't stay overnight. Remember in chapter 4, they arrested and put them in prison overnight and then the next morning they put them on trial. Well, this time, the apostles... Do not stay the night. During the night, verse 19 says, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. An angel of the Lord is sent to deliver them from prison. And the angel, as he's delivering them from prison, he he doesn't send them back home to their friends. He recommissions them. He recommissions the apostles. He lets them out of prison and he says, I want you to go to the temple and I want you to speak to the people all the words of this life. This life. I thought about this as I was reading and meditating 
the angels, the scripture says, the angels long to look into the salvation that you and I have been uh, given. The angels long to understand. The angels long to see and to understand the salvation that you and I have benefited greatly from. And here this angel is. He's, he's opening the door and he's recommissioning them to go. He's been sent by God as a messenger of God to deliver the apostles. And he's telling them, go into the temple and speak all the words of this life. And this angel, this angel longs to even understand this life, this new life that they proclaim. He recommissions them. To go and speak the words of this new life. This life of the resurrection. Remember our object lesson a couple of chapters ago. The man who was healed. The man who was lame at the temple gate and healed. He was brought back to life. He's an object lesson for Israel. Of the life that's waiting for them. If they would, would repent and turn from their sin. And believe upon the name of Jesus. They would be risen from the dead as it were. They would receive new life. And the angel says, go and speak to the people all the words of this life. Tell them that they can have resurrection life. Tell them they can be restored. Go to the temple and do not cease to proclaim this resurrection life in the name of Jesus. And so they go. They go. Preaching again in the temple. Well, the next morning... The high priest gathers together. It's the same crowd we saw back in chapter 4. The high priest came, those who were with him. They called together the council, all the synod of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. Can you imagine what that would have been like? They returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, I'd say, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. This is one of those times where you go, you know, I know sin is blinding, but don't you just throw in the towel at this point? Don't, don't you just say, okay, I tap out. I'm done. You, you, you won. You beat us. No, that's not what they do. But isn't this amazing? Someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And this, this is the point that the writer's giving us and how he structured this. God's word, the message of this life in Jesus, in the name of Jesus, this word regarding Jesus and the life that he brings in his name, this word will not be shackled. This word will not be imprisoned. This word will not be successfully opposed. God's message of this life will not be stopped. It's a powerful deliverance for sure. The message for us is clear. God's word regarding Jesus and his kingdom, the life that he offers in his name, 
it will not fail. It is our message that we are given to proclaim, and it will not be stopped. Now, I stop here to consider this wonderful, miraculous deliverance that the apostles experienced. This teaches us that God's word will not be shackled. And yet, how many of our brothers and sisters throughout history have experienced this type of deliverance? How how many people can say that they've experienced this type of deliverance in their testimony or witnessing to the truth of Jesus? How many have had the prison doors opened for them? The answer is not many. Not many. In fact, God does not normally deliver his faithful witnesses in this way. To, to pray, this is again an evidence, uh, the book of Acts is not meant to show us what's normative. Okay, When, when we experience this type of opposition, the normal response of God is not to deliver us miraculously. Now, to be sure, throughout church history, there are many evidences, there are many times where God has delivered in such a way. But the number of times where believers are not delivered far outweighs those where they are. We've been reading, I've mentioned this a couple of times, we've been reading uh, this book, Martyrs of the Catacombs, with our kids here and there. It's a fantastic book filled with scripture. It's a wonderful book for, for kids for story time around the fire or whatever. But it, but it details the suffering that the early Christians endured as they hide in the catacombs. You know what catacombs are? That's where they bury the dead people. And they, they are burying their dead. And they are worshiping in the middle of all the graves of those who have actually died. As a reminder of what is in store for them as well. This is the norm for the Christian. This is our lot. As we testify to the truth of Jesus. I mentioned a few weeks ago, John Patton, the missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. What a wonderful story, missionary story of a man who goes and faces cannibals. Faces cannibals. And he has some stories of miraculous deliverance of, of where he, he is sure the end has come and he's praying that God would give him courage to face his death. And God delivers him. But before John Patton ever got to the New Hebrides, a man who first went by the name of John Williams, John Williams was the first missionary to go to the New Hebrides. And he was praying that God would give him opportunity to witness to these cannibals. The first day he met with the cannibals, it seemed like he would be possibly given an entrance into one of their villages. The next day he came to shore with two accomplices, two men with him. And he stepped on shore, started walking towards the village, and he was killed. He was killed, and his body was tortured. He was eaten for the sake of the gospel. This is actually the norm. We are called to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus John Piper, I've been reading a lot of Piper lately. If 
you can tell. John Piper says, Our mission as witnesses to Jesus, our mission is not to win, but to witness. Our mission is not to win, but to witness. And in fact, in this life, Christian, we will not win often. Now, there are some with theology that say our goal is to win. Our job is to win. I think that's false. I think that's unhelpful. Because Jesus, in the scriptures, tells us to lay down our life. He has already given us the victory. He's already given us deliverance. He has already won. We testify, we witness in the victory and the triumph that we already possess, that we already have. Our witness will go forth in power often at the expense of our own lives, our own comforts, our own reputation. That's what it will cost you to have a powerful and effective witness in the people in your life. It will cost your reputation. It will cost your popularity. It may even cost you relationships. It may cost you more than that. The old leadership jealously opposes the new leadership of God's people. And they bring him to trial again. Now at this point, verse 26, the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They're still afraid of the people. I thought, you should be afraid of God at this point, not the people. But they're afraid of the people. They're afraid of what the people might do, so they bring them gingerly. To this trial, verse 27, we have the trial renewed. We had a trial in chapter 4. Now we have another trial here in chapter 5. The trial again is renewed. Remember at the last trial, they told them not to proclaim the name of Jesus any further. Here we see much more of the same. Verse 27, we have the accusation. When they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. We charged you not to preach or teach in this name, but here you have filled Jerusalem. Everybody knows now. You've filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You've done the exact opposite of what we told you to do. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You you intend to accuse us of being guilty of this man's blood. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. What a statement. Right, that, that's, that's really the message. That's really the main idea of this entire section, right? We must obey God rather than men. We have been commissioned by God. We have been given a message from God to proclaim the name of Jesus, and we must obey God rather than men. Let's, let's just do this real quick. Let's affirm this. Okay, I'm going to make a statement and then all of you are going to say amen to that. Okay, amen. 
All right? God's word is the ultimate authority. See? See how that works? God's word is the ultimate authority. Amen! God's authority means more than men's authority. There you go, see? We're we're teaching you how to do that. Now, it's easy for us to sit here and affirm that, isn't it? God's authority, God's word is the authority over the authority of men. Amen to that. I want to give a caution, though, at this point in the in the text, I want to give you a caution. The point of this statement made by the apostles that we must obey God rather than men, this isn't an excuse or a proof text to justify our rebellion against human authorities. It's not a proof text to give us a scripture and verse to justify all the ways that we don't want to obey our human authorities and uh, governing authorities. The, The Bible is replete. The Bible is full of passages that tell us as God's people to obey our human governments, to submit ourselves to earthly authorities. To have a good reputation, a good witness to the world by our obedience and submission and subjection to authorities. We should be looking to obey the authorities God has given us. But, the message of Jesus... The message of Jesus and the salvation that God has accomplished in his name. We must proclaim that message. Human, this is what is being taught us here in this passage. Human government. And human authorities, earthly authorities. Have no right to cause the proclamation of the gospel to cease. Human government, human authorities have no right to shut the mouths of God's appointed witness. And do you know who that witness is today? We don't have apostles walking around healing people. Who is the witness to the truth of the message of the gospel. Who is that witness today? It's the church. It's the church. The human government and authorities, they have no right to silence the church and the church's witness. Now this, this will bring suffering. This will bring suffering for God's people as the human governments and authorities seek to silence the witness to Jesus in his name. And God's people obediently do not obey man over God. We have a message to proclaim this. This will bring suffering. 
And I, I want to make this point here. As we suffer for obeying God rather than men, I want you to, I want you to think about this in your own life. Be careful what you are willing to suffer for. Be careful what you are willing to suffer for, the mountain that you want to die on. Be careful in what you suffer for. We are to suffer for the name of Jesus. But if we plant our flag and die on every hill, what actually happens is that the message of the name of Jesus, the gospel, is undermined. We don't want to elevate everything that we care about to that same level. That's what I'm saying. There are a lot of really important things that we believe that we will not suffer for, that we would be willing to obey our human governments and authorities. But we will not allow and we should not allow human government to silence the witness of the gospel. And let me say this as well. And I, I know this, this is going to be a controversial thing that I say. And, and I think it needs to be with discernment thought about and applied differently in each one of your situations. But can I, can I, can I submit to you that your boss also does not have the authority to tell you that you can't witness to your coworker in the name of Jesus? Your boss doesn't have that authority. Now, again, that has to be applied with discernment. I'm not telling you to be brash. Remember, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. Boldness doesn't mean brashness. It doesn't mean arrogance. Be wise. But, but we have people that live around us every week, every day, that need to hear the gospel. And there is no human authority, boss or government, that has the right to tell us we can't share that. And yes, you might lose your job over that. Again, I want to be very careful. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to tell you to be careless. What I'm saying is, your job ultimately isn't important. The souls of the people you live with are. Why do we care so much about losing these things? You know why? Because our hearts are wrapped up with this earth. Our hearts are wrapped up with these things that we, we have valued so highly. The message of the gospel has become hidden. Peter says, and the apostles say, we must obey God rather than men. The good news of Jesus and his kingdom is the sum of, it is the sum of God's authoritative message for the world. The message of Jesus and his kingdom, the message of salvation in his name, this is the sum of God's message for the world. This is it. God doesn't have another message. God doesn't have another message that we're to be proclaiming. The gospel is the message. The news of Jesus and his kingdom. And, and he walks back through this gospel message again. You see it there? Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. 
whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. Have you paid attention to all the titles given to the name of Jesus here through this section? First, in Acts chapter 2, Peter says that God has declared him to be both Lord and Christ. Lord. He is the Lord. He is the Christ. He is the King. Lord and Christ. And then, he is called the Holy and Righteous One. Jesus is the Lord and Christ, and He is the Holy and Righteous One. He's also called, in this section, the Author of Life. He is the Author of Life. And now, He is called the leader, the prince of his people, and the savior of his people. Why does Peter and the apostles, why do Peter and the apostles say that they have to obey God rather than men? Because this message that God has given them to proclaim, this is his authoritative message for the world. Jesus is the Lord and he is the Christ. He is the holy and righteous one. He is the author of life and he is the leader, the prince of his people, and he is the savior of his people. They must proclaim this. How can we not proclaim this? Don't you believe in God, Sadducees? The God of our fathers raised Jesus up, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. This Jesus, this Jesus, God has exalted him at his right hand as the leader and savior to do what? To give repentance, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, to bring his people back to God, back to himself. He has given Jesus. Don't you want us to tell his people how to come back to him? Don't you want us to tell the people about this life that he offers them to give repentance and forgiveness? Can I tell you here this morning, there is is forgiveness in the name of Jesus. If you will but repent of your sin. He has put forth Jesus as Lord and Christ. He is the holy and righteous one. He is the author of life. He is the leader, the prince of his people, and the savior for his people. Will you be one of his people even today? Will you repent of your sin and turn from self and put your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone in his name? He has died. He has risen again. He has defeated sin and he has defeated death. Will you put your faith in Jesus? This is God's authoritative word for the world. This is what he wants you to hear. Your whole life, your whole life is about God and his son, Jesus Christ. There's nothing else. There's nothing else that life is about. This is important for us to remember as his church but it's important for you to remember if you do not know God, if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, this message is for you this morning. He is the Lord in Christ, the holy and righteous one, the author of life, the leader and savior of his people. Will you be one of his people? Now, Peter and the apostles, 
what they are saying to the Sadducees is this. You, as Israel's leadership, you are against God's appointed king. You're against him. And because of that, you're against God. You are against God's purposes and plans for his people. You who pretend to be the leaders of God's people, you are against God's purposes and plans for his people. And you are against God's spirit. That spirit that was promised in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that spirit which will be given to God's people. You are against that spirit and you are against his authoritative witnesses. You are against God is the message, the summary of the message for the Sadducees. Now at this point, what should they do? What should they do but repent and throw themselves on the mercy of their God and his king? That's what they do in chapter 2, right? Brothers, what must we do to be saved? Brothers, what must we do? Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. But that is not their response. Now, look, they have another emotional response. First, they were filled with jealousy. But look at this now, verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged. They were enraged and wanted to kill them. This is the response of blinding sin. Presented with such a beautiful Savior, instead of repenting, they would rather kill the messengers, the witnesses. So the accusation is followed by the defense of Peter and the apostles. We must obey God rather than men. And now the closing argument. The closing argument is given by an unlikely man, a man by the name of Gamaliel. Look at verse 34. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Amen. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now this is a wonderful statement, isn't it? If it's of men, it will fail. If it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. Stop and and think about what's being said here. Gamaliel was the most learned, respected of all their number. He was the teacher of Saul. Saul, who is about to become Paul here in a few chapters. He was Saul's teacher. A lot of times people celebrate what Gamaliel says, but if you read closely, what he's saying is actually a gross understatement 
of the entire scene. First of all, he compares what's happening in Jerusalem with two movements that have no comparison whatsoever. Do you see that? Men. You remember Thutis? Remember Thutis? He uh, rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about, about 400. No, Gamaliel, this is thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. All of Jerusalem is filled with it. This is not Thutis. Oh, then after him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished. No, Gamaliel, this is not Judas. A few people have not followed after him. And they just were delivered from prison by an angel. It is, it is not the same thing. You're comparing apples to oranges here, Gamaliel. And then, he says, who knows, right? If this plan is undertaking as a man, it will fail. Yes. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overcome them, overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Have you not been listening to what the apostles just said, Gamaliel? Because they just told you, you are opposing God. In clear terms, you are opposing God. You're opposing God and his anointed king. You're, appointed, you're, you're opposing God and his plans for his people. You're opposing God and his Holy Spirit and his witnesses. You are opposing God. There is no, there is no doubt that you're in opposition to God. No, in fact, what Gamaliel should do here is stand up in front of the people and say, men, it's time to consider what these, what these men are saying. It's time to consider the gospel message. Gamaliel should not be praised for his statement here. He is a shrewd politician who is self-serving and not wanting to upset the people any more than they already are. He should have called them to consider the message. He should have called them to repentance. He, as much as anybody, being as learned as anybody, he should have seen what was happening, but he did not. And yet it was this man's speech, this man's speech that caused the high priest and the Sadducees and the council of the Senate to not take the lives of the apostles. And God, in a way, delivers, once again, his witnesses through this unlikely man. But here's the verdict. We saw the accusation. We saw the defense. We saw the final statements, closing arguments. And here's the verdict. Look at what they do. They took his advice. Verse 40, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. Do you pass over that very quickly? They beat them. What do you think that looked like? They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, licking their wounds, 
sad over their beatings. How do they leave the council? It says it right there. Rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I want to read a couple of passages for you. Matthew 5, verse 11. We've, we've quoted it or hinted at it a few times. Chapter 5, verse 11. Listen, beloved. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen now to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Let me read that again. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We, we, want, we want, again, that experience, don't we, a lot of times? We want to see powerful movements. We want to see God's word go forth. We say amen to those types of things, right? We want God's Holy Spirit we, we, we want to experience God's Holy Spirit and God pouring out His Spirit even upon us. He's done that. He's done that. He's given us His Spirit, but we want to experience. Don't you ever find yourself saying, I want to experience the Spirit of God upon my life. You, you know why those prayers go unanswered many times? Is because we are so carefully constructing a life for ourselves most of the time that, that avoids discomfort and that avoids opposition and that avoids any, any type of insults or any type of harm against us. We want the Holy Spirit in that experience, but yet we are not, we are not ready to suffer for the name of Jesus. I want to tell you, beloved, I want to give you this promise. If you will step forth boldly, ready to proclaim the name of Jesus to those in your life, He will give you that experience of the Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit will be upon you. And you will be given that power to proclaim his name in boldness and courage. Again, again, you will suffer for it. But that is our joy. That is what is to be expected. To suffer dishonor for the name. They, they didn't get angry. Do you know this, this suffering here was unjust? This suffering was unjust suffering. It wasn't right. It was wrong. They shouldn't have suffered for what they were doing. It was unjust. 
But they didn't get angry at the injustice of it. They rejoiced. Is our response to be angry over the injustice? The unjust suffering that we see and observe? Maybe even experience? Is our response to get angry? I think there are some some tendencies in us to get angry. Look at what the government's doing. Look at this world and how how much it hates the gospel. Can't believe it. What, what, What do we expect? Are we angry? At the human governments and human authorities? Are we angry with them? You're wasting your time, people. There's no sense in being angry. Rejoice. Rejoice that we are able to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. Rejoice. And I say that. My heart's not ready to rejoice a lot of times. I want to rejoice in suffering. I want to experience God's provision through his Holy Spirit in boldness and courage. I'm afraid that sometimes this this truth that the Christian is called to suffer for the name of Jesus, oftentimes that's that's treated like it's small print in the Christian message, right? Did you read the small print? It's not small print. Jesus leads with it. It's a major headline of what it means to follow Jesus. This is why he says, take up your cross and follow me. You will lose so much, he says, but you'll gain everything because you are following the Lord and Christ, the Holy and Righteous One, the author of life, the Prince and Savior for his people. We will gain everything by following Jesus. And and what we lose is so temporal and so light compared to an eternal weight of glory. It's not the small print of the Christian message. I'm afraid that sometimes when we preach the gospel, we don't, we don't include all of this, right? Because we want people to sign up for the Christian life. But the Christian life is it to be sold. It's a summons to repentance and faith in the Lord and Christ. And even a willingness to lose our life for the sake of his name. And they went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching the Christ is Jesus. I wrote down just a prayer or prompts for a prayer in light of this entire section, really. God, give us confidence that your word will not be shackled. We sang, a mighty fortress is our God. That was purposeful, right? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them. Abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. 
The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. God, give us that confidence that your word will not be shackled. The enemy will not prevail. It may cost us everything. The opposition will vary. It will be emotional. It will be physical. That opposition will be real. But your word will not be shackled. Give us that conviction, God, in your message regarding Jesus. Give us the conviction that it is a singular and an exclusive message. Keep us, let us, let us not settle for half truths or weak gospels, cheap grace. Let us be committed to this message that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And call men out of love for their souls, call them to repentance and faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is the sum of God's authoritative word to the world. There is no other message. God, give us a capacity and a perspective for suffering for the sake of your name. A few weeks ago, I gave you the challenge of talking with each other in your small groups on how you can grow your capacity for suffering together. I wrote down just a couple of things. Memorize scripture. Memorize scripture together. In the time where you need that boldness and courage, if you've memorized scripture, the Holy Spirit can, can bring to remembrance those things you've memorized, those truths you've memorized. Memorize scripture. Recite and sing the hymns of the faith like a mighty fortress is our God. Do you take these home with you and read them throughout the week? Reflect upon through the week or they just go in the, in the bin of trash when you go home? They shouldn't. I'd buy each one of you three or four hymnals if I could. You go home and read hymns, these truths. Somebody once told me, when you're on your deathbed, when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to remember all the sermons you heard. It's true. You're not, you're not going to remember all the sermons you heard. You're, gonna remember, you're not going to remember all the things you, you, you read, may, maybe, but what you will remember, what you will remember is the songs, the songs that you have memorized and sung. Sing them with your family. Sing the hymns with your kids. Develop in them this good theology. Recite and sing the hymns of the faith. And don't miss gathering with the saints. I know sickness happens. That's not what I'm talking about. Vacations happen. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm, what I'm talking about is the commitment to gather with the saints. Why? Because we need to remember every week who we are. We need to remember every week the fact that God's word will prevail. Don't miss the gathering of the saints together. Read good books. Read good books. Read good literature. Read, read literature that will stimulate your courage. Read missionary biographies. Read about men and women who are willing to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. Ask God to make you like them as an example. And then pray for opportunities. Pray for opportunities to be bold, to be courageous. Pray for opportunities this week. You're going to be getting together with family this week. Some of those conversations are going to be really hard. Some of those conversations aren't going to be very easy, are they? Pray for opportunities. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel and pray for opportunities, perish the thought, pray for opportunities to be counted worthy of the name of Jesus 
even to the point of suffering. Pray to be counted worthy for his name's sake. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for all the many ways you have poured out your grace upon us. I pray that you would be exalted in our hearts and minds, that your son Jesus would be exalted in our hearts and minds, that we would be your people with your message, declaring in your power, and that we would be ready and willing to suffer, that we would that we would rejoice at the opportunity to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus.